we try to achieve a goal thinking that in achieving the goal, we will find happiness or significance. And because we've been built up so high, we end up getting let down. That's why I love Matt Chandler's quote that reminds us that a better version of you will, will not make you more satisfied. A healthier, more slimmer version of you, a wealthier version of you, a wealthier, a, a version of you with more credentials, a version of you with the ring on your finger, a version of you with more degrees or more success or more children will not make you more satisfied. Satan would have us believe that satisfaction will come with more pleasure, with, with, a, with a greater promotion with the next degree, with the viral engagement, with the baby announcement, or with some kind of physical goal. And Satan would have us to believe that because ultimately the scriptures remind us that Satan is a liar and a deceiver and the truth is not in him. When we believe the lie that a better version of me will make me more satisfied, we just set ourselves up for failure and disappointment in life because nothing in this life will truly satisfy us. When we, when we fall prey to the lies of Satan, the fruit of those lies are the belief that personal happiness should become the focus and the point of my life. Too many of us have made the personal pursuit of happiness the, the focus and primary pursuit of our lives. And this is the temptation that we all must face. Not just some of us, but all of us are daily presented with the opportunity to live life to please self versus living a life that ultimately pleases God. When we think about our lives, we think about even the goals that we set, the vision board that we have, the plans that we have made. When we think about the year that is before us, the next 12 months that is before us, have we taken the time to focus on how we can order and orchestrate our life in such a way that God will be pleased. When you think about the vacation, your work schedule, your kids' schedule, even your school schedule, do we take the time to consider how we can personally please God? The Westminster uh, Catechism begins with a very, very simple question. Uh, it's a question that says, what is the chief end of man? Basically, the question is asking the, the, the asking the audience, what is the point of life? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I believe we live in a culture, though, that has changed the answer to that question. If we would ask most Christians the question, what is the chief end of man, uh, not the average American or the average Southerner or the average college student, if we would ask the average Christian the average believer, the average person who attends church on Sunday, I believe their answer will be some derivative of the following statement. That man's chief end is to enjoy life and to be remembered as one who lived life to the fullest. That man's chief end is to not have any regrets. That man's chief end is to live our best life now. And as we read chapter number two, we clearly see uh, a testimony from a man who experienced the pain of life because he was driven by the pursuit of personal pleasure rather than being driven by the pursuit that has been de determined by God. So when we look at the text this morning, we see three things that Solomon bears onto the record. Number one, he, we see very clearly what Solomon enjoyed. Verse number one says, 
I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Uh, every time we, we read verse number one, we need to understand that, that every word in that verse is important. The word test indicates uh, what follows is an experiment. Solomon is communicating uh, a deliberate attempt to learn from personal experience. Uh, he was a person who did not want to take somebody's word for it. He wanted to experience it for himself. When you see the word pleasure, it is, the, it is an experience in life. In verse number two, it says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? It is almost as if Solomon is asking the question, can laughter fill the void in my heart? Can laughter bring significance in my life? And at the end of the experiment, not only did laughter not satisfy, Solomon concluded that it would make a person mad. The word we translate mad really means foolish or blind. In other words, he's saying that this is uh, the, the pursuit of laughter and enjoyment and fun will ultimately leave you frustrated and foolish. Uh, every year in the U.S., uh, statistics tell us that 5% uh, that, that Americans spend 5% of their annual income on what they would consider entertainment and enjoyment. Yet, how many of us, how many uh, statistics will tell us that we are more depressed, more frustrated, and more down than we've ever been before? Even if laughter plays a role in life, it cannot give true meaning to life or provide ultimate satisfaction in life apart from Christ. Verse 3 says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Uh, the pleasure that came from laughter uh, was where he started, but then he continued with asking the question, can I satisfy my life uh, with wine? Uh, could, could a libation or a good drink bring me satisfaction and happiness? In his quest for meaning and satisfaction, Solomon settled that what simply made his body feel good was not able to give him significance and meaning in life. So first we see that Solomon's search began with what he enjoyed, laughter and wine. But secondly, uh, his search continued by what he established. Verse 4 says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Next, Solomon says, after what I enjoy, he says, I'm going to spend my life trying to establish and build something. Solomon says, I'm going to get involved with building big projects. He says, I want to get involved with establishing great works. If you go back and look at his life, it is true that Solomon built great houses and great cities, great gardens, great vineyards, great orchards. Uh, he built uh, water systems. Of course, he built uh, the temple, which is one of the greatest things ever built. He had people who worked for him. He had wealth. He had flocks. He had all these things, but none of these these things brought him satisfaction in life. He had wealth. He had women. He had workers. He had everything that we could have or desire in life. And the journey that he was on was brought temporary pleasure, but the destination brought pain in his life. 
want you to hear Henry Ward Beecher once said, success is full of promise until men get it, and then it's last year's nest from which birds have flown. As we read the text, we must not conclude that Solomon is condemning work because God is the one who established the the responsibility for men and women to work. If you go back to Genesis 2.15, the scripture simply says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God gives us a responsibility to work. Tomorrow, well, maybe you're off tomorrow like me, but five days this week, you need to go to work. (laughs) You need to work. You have a responsibility to take care of your business. But here's the truth. In working, I cannot be consumed with work to the point that I think that my happiness and my satisfaction will be found in work. Ambrose Bierce um, called achievement the death of an endeavor and the birth of disgust. It has been said that many of us are overachievers because we are trying to escape ourselves. We are trying to be workaholics because we don't want to be disappointed with the things in life. read an article that talked about how many people retire and end up feeling useless and unhappy because their identity in life was established by what they did every day. So first, we see what Solomon enjoyed, and secondly, we see what Solomon established, and here's the point. Thirdly, we see what Solomon experienced. Verse 9 gives us a summary of the pleasures that he enjoyed. Verse 9 says, so I, came, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained. And whatever my eyes desired, hear this, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure and from my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Rather than waiting for God to make him great, as God promised him, Solomon made the decision to try to make himself great by what he enjoyed and by what he established. How do we know that God promised to make Solomon great? I don't have time to go there, but if you go back to 1 Kings 1.37, there was a prophecy that his kingdom would be the greatest kingdom on the earth. It would be greater than than his father's David's kingdom. It's unfortunate that rather than allowing the Lord to make him great, he resisted that promise and and fell prey to the pursuit of greatness through pleasure. The scripture tells us that he denied himself nothing. In the quest for being important, he says, I was going to not withhold anything that I felt like I wanted. Ultimately, he tried to make himself important by what he established and by what he enjoyed. When I look at this When I look at his testimony, from what Solomon experienced, we should be reminded, I want everybody to hear me on this one, God has not called you to be important. God has not called any of us to be important, but God has called us to be faithful. And when you are faithful, God will allow you to do important things. So many of us get caught up in wanting to be important, wanting to have the legacy, wanting to have the fame, wanting to be known, wanting to have the notoriety, wanting to have the followers. And the scriptures tell us very clearly, don't focus on trying to be important. Focus your life on what it means to be faithful. If Solomon lived today, he would be on the cover of Fortune magazine. 
Uh, he would be covered by Architectural Digest. Uh, for his birthday, uh, musicians like uh, Cardi B or Bruno Mars would have sung at his birthday party. Seriously. I mean, models would have been in his bedroom. He would have probably been the person that the world envied the most. I mean, who would not want uh, women and wisdom and, and wealth? But before we respond and say, I want a life like that, we got to look at how his life ended up ending in pain and disgrace because he was not faithful to God. Before we would say, I want to be like Solomon, I would submit to you that Solomon would want to be like us. I mean, Solomon had a lot of things in his life, but uh, Solomon lived in the palace, but Solomon never uh, experienced uh, central air conditioning. Um, <laughs> Solomon ate great feast, uh, but he never went to Golden Corral or Fogo de Chao. <laughs> N- never had some Popeyes. <laughs> Solomon had thousands of women, right? He had he had an unlimited resource of women, but Solomon did not have anything on the internet. Solomon would have been a bad man on Snapchat. (laughs) He would have have had a life that was full of sex and images. And when you look at it, I'm I'm saying that specifically because I don't want us to look at Solomon's life and not realize that we face the same issues that he faced. uh, We face the same issues today that he faced then. And I would even say maybe even greater issues. When we look at it, we should know that though we have more than we've ever had, though we have more connection, though we, more, though we have more accessibility, the question we've got to ask ourselves is, are we truly satisfied with life or are we still wanting more? Uh, David Hubbard is quoted as saying, pleasures advertising department is much more effective than its manufacturing department. After pursuing pleasure, the morning after Solomon wakes up and simply says, in verse 13, Then I considered that all my hands had what well, all my hands had done, and the toil I had experienced expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. When we read verse 11, the verb we translate consider literally means to have a face-to-face. It means to look something right in the eye. Solomon is communicating that when he came face-to-face with reality, his reality was not pretty. It was really empty. In verse 11, it takes us back to the key phrase of the entire book, the phrase, under the sun. Solomon is saying, I squeezed all the pleasure out of life, and I gained nothing under the sun. When we consider the truth of the text this morning, if we were uh, to make a decision uh, to stop here, it would, be, it would be really bad. Because either we can learn the lesson from Ecclesiastes, or we will learn the lesson for ourselves from our own life. If, we ended, if I ended the sermon right here, it would be it would be really depressing and hopeless, and we would leave here distraught, but we got to consider what the text continues to say. When we finally discover, I want you to hear me on this, that all the pleasure of life we pursue under the sun cannot satisfy the soul, then we have a divine invitation to look beyond the sun. Our, satis- our, our unsatisfied longing 
are clues that we were made to enjoy the pleasures of God based upon God's plan. There's a social critic that I read. His name is Andrew DeBlanco. He says it this way. He says, the world leaves us with an unslacked craving for transcendence. And that craving is designed by God. If we were to find longing, satisfaction, and earthly pleasures, then we would never look to God for pleasure. On one level, we should see some of our dissatisfaction in life as something reminding us to turn back to heart, to turn our our hearts back to the Lord, not away from God, not away from the church, not away from Christ, but back to Christ. That's why theologians at this point say that more so than any other book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes reminds us of our need for God. It is written so that we can be pointed back to our greatest need. Not so that we can be upset or depressed, but so that we can have the truth that we need God more so than anything else in this life. We were made for another world. And there is a God in heaven who sent his son to save the world and also to satisfy our soul. Jesus came to model this reality, and he came not to live a life of pleasing himself, but he lived a life modeling what it means to please the Father. That's why one commentator says it this way, everything that Solomon pursued, Jesus was tempted by yet resisted, which reminds us that Jesus is the Savior that every dissatisfied sinner needs in our lives. So the question that we're probably thinking, okay, okay, preacher, I get it. There's nothing under the sun. Like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live life? How am I supposed to handle the pressures of life or the pleasures of life? Like, preacher, how can I have a life that is to be enjoyed? To, the, to illustrate this point, I want to lean on C.S. Lewis. Um, his book, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the particular section that I want to reference is uh, from Prince Caspian. Uh, there's a point in there where Lucy uh, and Susan are having fun with Aslan. Aslan is the great king, and Aslan has returned to the land of Narnia, and he is awakened the forest, and there's dancing, there's celebrating, there's laughing, there's shouting, and in the midst of the celebration, there is one wild boy who stands out more so than any other. He's not just simply dancing. He has on deer clothes. He's almost out of control. And Lucy looks at the boy and remarks, there is someone who might do absolutely anything. Uh, Later in the story, the children figure out that the boy is dressed up. The boy who was dressed up in the deer skin is a a character named Bacchus, uh, who was known as Dionysus, who was the god of wine. And this prompts Lucy to make the wise observation I would not have felt safe with Bacchus and his wild friends if we had met them without Aslan being present. What is being communicated by C.S. Lewis is, it is applicable to our lives that pleasure is only safe when God is present. Say it again. The pleasures of life are only safe when our God is is present. This means that we must receive and understand every pleasure in life as a gift from God to be enjoyed in light of our relationship with God. Chris, you can come on back up. I'm about to close. Here's our application for today. Number one, when we think about the issue of pleasure, I want to tell you very clearly 
the pleasures of life can be enjoyed. We should enjoy laughter, but that laughter must come not from making light of sin or others, but that laughter should come as we enjoy the presence of the Lord. Please do not hear me saying that God wants you to live a life that is, that is free of, of excitement and pleasure and enjoyment. What I'm communicating to you is this. Everything we enjoy must be enjoyed in light of God's presence. Secondly, the pleasures of life cannot allow us to establish good things. God can and will bless the work of your hands. God can and will give you a home to enjoy. God will give you work to enjoy. God will allow you food to enjoy, a life to enjoy, but we cannot be mastered by anything that we have established in our lives. We should never be held hostage by the things that we have established. So if the house or the car or the relationship or the job or the degree is holding me hostage, that means that I'm not enjoying it God's way. We cannot allow the gifts of this life to cause us to forget about the giver of life. And thirdly, the pleasures of life can give us good experiences. I want to say this very clearly. We taste God's pleasure when we design a home or a building or a project in light of others and the glory of God. The Lord wants you to experience great things. But God wants you to experience those things in light of his glory and giving to others. We taste the pleasure of God when we stroll through a beautiful garden, when we see a, a beautiful sunset, when we reflect on God's creation. We taste part of God's pleasure. When we have a job that we enjoy and we work with all of our heart unto the Lord, that is a part of tasting God's pleasure. When we have the mindset that whatever we do, we're going to do it unto the Lord, that is a part of tasting God's pleasure. Even you think about the issue of sex. Sex is one of the greatest gifts from the Lord, but that gift must be experienced in light of godly covenant relationships. When you hear this, I don't want you to hear that God is... Uh, this ecclesiastical spoil sport that is trying to take pleasure out of your life. But God is trying to protect you from pursuing pleasure that will bring pain in your life. So when you look at the text, we have an invitation today. The invitation is to look to the Lord. The invitation is to find our pleasure in relationship with God. The invitation is to find pleasure in God's presence. The challenge is to say that outside of God's presence, outside of God's purpose, there is only pain. There is shame. And when I, when I fail to heed the warning of God, it's not that God is trying to punish me and God is trying to strike me down. It's the Lord is allowing me to taste the fruit of my own decisions. So this morning, I want to encourage you as we close. Enjoy the pleasures of life. But make sure those pleasures are connected to God's purpose. Make sure that those pleasures 
are always in God's presence and make sure those pleasures don't just benefit you, but they also benefit other people. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. I thank you for all that we've seen and heard today. I pray that you would help us to continue to wrestle with these questions, to wrestle with the reality of life above the sun. God, as we prepare our hearts for worship, God, I pray that you will continue to minister to us. And I pray God you will bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.